It's 2005, and journalist Jason Zingerly is going to meet America's most beloved doctor. He was 85. His pants were probably pulled up a little bit higher than they might have been when he was a younger man. He kind of wore them high. His eyes, he had these gray eyes that, it's sort of a cliche to say someone has piercing eyes, but when he looked at you, you really felt it. Jason had left a few voicemails for the doctor and had been invited to Cincinnati to do an interview. His office was kind of funny because it was in the Heimlich Institute, which, you know, if you think about an institute, it sounds very grand and you think it would be almost like an entire campus. But in actuality, it was just a couple rooms in an annex behind a hospital in Cincinnati. Jason was going to visit this doctor at the Heimlich Institute because this doctor was actually Dr. Henry Heimlich. Yeah, the guy responsible for me and a whole lot of other people imagining saving somebody's life by hugging them from the back and squeezing their stomach. I remember learning the Heimlich maneuver in school and having to demonstrate it on each other, thinking, this is kind of weirdly intimate. The man Heimlich was famous the world over for inventing one of modern medicine's most famous procedures. He had framed cartoon strips that referenced the Heimlich Maneuver. Um, he had pictures of the various celebrities, um, like whether it was Cher or Elizabeth Taylor or Ronald Reagan, who'd been saved by the maneuver. And then on the floor, I remember he had this giant toy caterpillar, which was the character Heimlich from the kids' movie A Bug's Life. Heimlich's invention had made him a household name. It brought him fame and fortune across America. But Jason was about to find out that this fella might not be so much of a hero after all because of a secret lurking in the background, a secret so dark that it threatened to rip Henry Heimlich's reputation and his family apart. I started receiving faxes of the articles attacking Henry Heimlich, and I received faxes of that and an offer to talk to the, to the person who had wrote them. I think that there was a message saying, you know, if you're interested in this, you can call me. These letters and articles said that maybe Henry Heimlich, this doctor loved across the country, wasn't who he claimed to be. That maybe Henry Heimlich was phony, a fraud, a cheat. No. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest cheating scandals in history and tries to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? Let's go back to 1963, before Heimlich was a household name. Something strange was happening across America. People were dropping dead mid-mouthful in diners, and no one could understand why. It was a mystery. Their deaths were initially attributed to natural causes, usually a heart attack. This is Jason again. My name is Jason Zengerly, and I'm a writer for the New York Times Magazine. There was this coroner in Florida who was involved in the postmortems, and he made a startling discovery. It wasn't a heart attack. These people were dying with food lodged in their airways. He said that you know, it was steak in four cases, beef in two, ham fat in one, kippered herring in one, and broiled lobster in another. Damn, the diners had choked to death. Media outlets started calling it the Cafe Coronary. It really became like a, a big public furor about choking. Um, there would be, you know, public service announcements on radio stations. Suppose you're eating with a friend and he suddenly begins to choke. Would you know what to do? And I think the public was sufficiently alarmed about choking that the doctors who were sort of working to solve the problem 
recognize that whoever came up with the the correct treatment or the correct device would would be you know hailed as a hero. So wait a minute. All these doctors working to solve a choking problem? Well, my parents just told me to chew my food before swallowing. So maybe great parents are the heroes. But absent the advice that parents have been giving us for decades, suddenly there was an explosion of choking prevention devices created by doctors. There was one that was called the throat evac, which... uh created like an airtight seal on the person's mouth and then like supposedly sucked up the food out of their throat. Even the coroner who diagnosed the phenomenon came up with his own invention. This nine inch long pair of plastic tweezers that he called the choke saver that you would stick down a person's throat and you know, grasp the food and pull it out. No, 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 no. That sounds like some medieval shit to me. And unsurprisingly, none of them worked. But there was another doctor hard at work in the lab trying to solve the problem himself. But this guy was using dogs. Beagles, in fact. He partially anesthetized them, which um, he said was sort of to create the equivalent of them having three or four stiff drinks at dinner because oftentimes people would choke after they'd had a fair amount to drink. Then he put a tube into their throat to simulate a piece of food and tried to dislodge it. I mean, really, the beagles didn't do anything to deserve this. He pushed on the diaphragm, and sure enough, the, the tube flew out of the beagle's mouth. And um, he sent a lab tech down to the hospital commissary to get some raw hamburger meat, put that in the beagle's larynx, pushed up on the diaphragm, it came out again. And that's how Henry Heimlich invented the Heimlich Maneuver on some drugged-up dogs. It was such a simple move that anyone could do it, even kids. You've seen it, I'm sure. But let me describe. You stand behind the person choking and wrap your hands around them. Then you make a fist with one hand and put your other hand over the top, pushing the fist inwards and upwards into their abdomen until the piece of food is dislodged. But you see, the only problem was he needed data to prove the maneuver worked. And obviously, it wouldn't be ethical to drug humans like he did the dogs, as if that was ethical in the first place. You couldn't sort of intentionally choke a human and then try to, um, you know, get the air in the lungs to expel the food. So he came up with a pretty smart plan. He reached out to a medical journal called Emergency Medicine. It was called a throwaway journal. It didn't require any of its articles to be peer-reviewed. You see, if a journal isn't peer-reviewed, it means the article hasn't been approved by experts in the industry. So people can pretty much write whatever they want. Sounds kind of bootleg to me. He got emergency medicine to let him publish an article about the experiments he did on these beagles. He basically, you know, said, this has worked on beagles. Now we're going to see if it works on humans. From beagles to humans. Basically, he wanted the public to test the Heimlich on people who were choking and report their findings. But regular people don't tend to read obscure medical journals. So he had to think smarter. Heimlich made sure that the emergency medicine article made it to a man named Arthur Snyder, who wrote nationally syndicated medical column for the Chicago Daily News. And Snyder wrote about Heimlich's experiments on the Beagles and Heimlich's request that people try to use this method on choking humans. And it, you know, went out across the United States. This is crazy. 
Essentially, this dude crowdsourced a medical procedure. And suddenly, reports started rolling in of people successfully saving a neighbor or fellow diner from choking using the Heimlich maneuver. In June of 1974, a retired restaurant owner named Isaac read Snyder's article about the Heimlich maneuver. He had seen several of his own restaurant diners choke and die in his time, so the article stayed with him. Then a week after he read it, he used the maneuver to save a woman who was choking on a piece of chicken. Isaac was the first person to use the Heimlich, not on dogs at least, and the following news coverage sparked many more saves. Everybody was doing the Heimlich maneuver. It was almost like a new dance craze. One four-year-old girl saved her two-year-old brother who was choking in his high chair. It was kind of crazy, but medical institutions weren't convinced of Heimlich's new theory. In the American Red Cross, which was sort of the leading life-saving institution in the United States, would only endorse the Heimlich maneuver as a secondary technique uh, to be used if back blows, which was the traditional technique to prevent choking, um, if those were unsuccessful. This pissed Dr. Heimlich off. He thought these institutions were jealous. Frankly, I think it produced a lot of jealousy among some people in the medical profession. That's Phil Heimlich, son of Henry Heimlich. Not only was he getting all this attention, but you understand there are people in the, like in the Red Cross, they're supposed to be the experts in emergency medicine. And yet this doctor from Cincinnati, who, who was not an emergency me- medical physician, he invents this thing. And these guys who are supposed to know what they're doing uh, didn't. I mean, they kind of sound like haters to me. And sometimes you can't ask your haters for permission. So, realizing that he couldn't convince the authorities, Henry decided that he wouldn't bother with them at all. Instead, he'd go direct to the public. He was a really kind of brilliant salesman. So, he created these Heimlich Maneuver posters and t-shirts, and he sold them. He made a a film that featured choking actors being saved by the Heimlich Maneuver. Then in 1979, Henry was invited to be a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Come on, I, I enjoyed demonstrating this on Lynn Redgrave. No, I'll bet you more. did. He and Johnny Carson engaged in this hilarious banter where he was kind of making jokes and, and Johnny would respond. Then you press into right. the abdomen with a quick upward thrust. Right. That pushes the diaphragm up, right. compresses the air, and blows the object away. All right. Uh. <laughs> he very much looked the part of uh, a very serious, sober doctor, but he was, he was also kind of a showman, and he was very uh, entertaining when he promoted the maneuver. I mean, he would tell kind of risque jokes, and he would ask everybody in the crowd to hug one another and give each other the maneuver, and it was, it was really, you know, it was, it was quite a performance. Henry Heimlich might have just been a doctor, but he was made for the limelight. My father, I think, enjoyed the celebrity. I think like a lot of surgeons, he probably had a bit of a God complex, and um, this was certainly feeding it. And that God complex was probably no more blatant than in the war Henry was waging against the American Red Cross. He believed that slapping someone on the back would drive the food deeper. So he called the back slaps death blows and encouraged people not to use them. Henry's whole family took part in the campaign to promote the maneuver, including his two sons, Phil and Peter. Phil started a company um, that helped him make the 
posters and the t-shirts. And Peter, um, he was a musician, and he actually did the score for, for the movie that he made promoting the, uh, the maneuver. And Peter's band back then was called Choke. Heimlich's promotion was so successful that people were using his maneuver as the primary anti-choking method, regardless of what the Red Cross advised. At this point, he had become somewhat of a hero. He had quickly become the most famous doctor in America, and all that attention had caught someone's eye. In spring of 2005, that person had started sending Jason faxes with letters dissecting Heimlich's work and life. There were a number of letters written to medical journals, medical bodies, making very serious allegations against, against Heimlich. All the letters said the same thing. The great Dr. Heimlich was a quack. That's coming up after the break. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Jason had read about Henry Heimlich's work and wanted to do an interview with him for an article he was writing. So he gave Henry a call. There was no answer, so he left a message on Henry's machine. Shortly after leaving the voicemail, this strange thing happened. Jason's fax machine started up, and a piece of paper emerged. It was a message from an anonymous source. I think that there was a message saying, you know, if you're interested in this, you can call me. This person had been emailing medical organizations and journalists accusing Henry of being a fraud. They'd even set up a website dedicated to exposing Henry. The letters were signed, Dr. Bob Smith, David Inesco, and Holly Martins. But so far, Henry had ignored them. He figured they were from jealous peers who couldn't stand the success and attention his work was getting. Jason, however, wasn't able to ignore these accusations. He started digging. And what he found was crazy. The story starts in 1993. This was about 20 years after inventing the Heimlich Maneuver. And Henry Heimlich was on the hunt for another societal problem he could solve. 
you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, um, people were desperate for treatments for AIDS. This was Henry's chance to put his name back in lights. He was going to solve the AIDS crisis. AIDS was a big cause in Hollywood. A lot of Hollywood stars were willing to put money into AIDS research, and so Heimlich starts to do some, and he comes across this study. A study that says if you incite a high fever in a patient suffering from neurosyphilis, it could potentially cure them. But could this work for AIDS patients too? And then he reads about this treatment from the 1920s. Doctors were injecting patients suffering from neurosyphilis with malaria. The patients would develop 105 degree fevers, and after a couple of weeks, doctors would cure the malaria and see if they were still suffering from neurosyphilis. And some of the patients did get better, but most of them, they suffered through some terrible shit. Excruciating migraines, body pain, hallucinations, and vomiting. You name it, these patients had it. And after penicillin was discovered in the, in the 1940s, no one used malaria therapy anymore. And it was, you know, sort of viewed as obsolete and maybe even a little bit barbaric. That was until Henry Heimlich came along. He read these old-ass studies and became convinced that this was the way to cure AIDS. Now, all he needed was patience and money. So where does he go? Henry Heimlich went to Hollywood. You know, he was coming along with a credible reputation and the promise of a life-saving technique. And uh, they were happy to, to give him some of their money. AIDS was a big problem in Hollywood. People were desperate. A lot of actors knew people dying of AIDS. And a lot of celebrities donated money. Muhammad Ali, Bette Midler, Angelica Houston, Ed Asner, they all gave money to Henry. But Henry still needed patience. So he took the money to China where he could get away with actually performing these experiments, this malarial therapy. He never would have been able to get approval for them in the United States. That's why he was doing them in China. These were not studies that any you know, credible medical research institution would have agreed to do in the United States. So that was why he was doing them elsewhere. By 2002, Henry's theory had sparked a lot of attention. That's when the emails and letters started arriving. Beginning in 1994, he had these Chinese doctors um, inject, you know, at least eight HIV patients with malarial blood. And Heimlich thought, you know, he had the evidence now that showed malaria therapy would work. And he actually went to the World AIDS Conference in Vancouver in 1996 to present this. And he was, he was really convinced that this, this was it. But it turned out that the tests the Chinese doctors were using were notoriously unreliable. So the data that Heimlich had was useless. Useless. All those vulnerable, desperate people had gone through hell for no reason. And it wasn't just in China that this happened. He had done malarial therapy experiments before. He actually went to um, Mexico, and the Mexican National Cancer Institute in Mexico City, and entered into a research project with them where they um, began treating five cancer patients with malaria therapy, but um, the results were not good. I think less than a year after uh, these patients received their first inoculations, um, four of them had died. I mean, come on, Henry, like four out of five people die? At what point did the ends not justify the means? So Jason, armed with this information and these letters that he was getting saying Heimlich is a fraud, flies to Cincinnati to talk to the good doctor. I mean, he seemed fairly imperious and you know, very arrogant. You know, he, he seemed like someone who 
was used to getting his way, and if he didn't get his way, would <laughs> would fight very hard to make sure that he did. Jason straight up asked Henry about the malarial therapy experiments, and he was happy to talk about them. He had all these binders, and he opened up the last binder, and he said, now I will tell you about the malaria therapy in Africa. Yep, that's right. Henry was still at it. But he wouldn't tell Jason where exactly these experiments were taking place. So Jason did some digging of his own and discovered they were happening in Ethiopia. I contacted the Ethiopian Ministry of Health and, you know, to ask them about this. And they, they were unaware of any medical uh, research in this area. And, you know, if it, and they said that if it was being done, it was being done without proper notification and permission. So you already know Henry Heimlich never really cared about authority. But the anonymous letters that were being sent to journalists and medical organizations attacking his work were affecting his image. He needed to know who was behind it, who was trying to take him down. So um, he hired a lawyer who hired an investigator to try to figure out who was behind all of it. Initially, Heimlich thought it could have been one of the you know many sort of doctors or medical figures he'd tangled with over the years, especially about the Heimlich maneuver. I mean, he was you know he was involved in a pretty ferocious fight over that. He gave the investigator a list of people he thought might be behind the email. The investigator, you know, sort of tried to track those people down. But they were all dead ends. Then one day, they made a breakthrough. At first, the investigator realized that all of the emails that were being sent um, making these allegations against Heimlich and I think the website itself all shared uh, an ISP number. So it was clear that even though these were all coming from people with different names and, you know, oftentimes from, you know, far-flung email addresses, far-flung web servers, they all went back to the same ISP number. So you remember Bob Smith, David Inesco, and Holly Martins? They were all the same person. They were pseudonyms. So the investigator did a search of the phone numbers used by Bob, David, and Holly. One of the phone numbers turned up an internet classified ad for a television that was a television and VCR that were being sold in Portland, Oregon. So they used the same number in their campaign against Henry as they did in the personal ad selling their TV. Yeah, that's a rookie mistake. The seller owned a company that was called Global Fabric. There at the bottom of the ad was a name and the seller identified himself as Pete. The whole campaign, the emails, the website, it had all come from this one person. Peter Heimlich lived in Portland, Oregon and owned a company called Global Fabric. All of these attacks were from Henry's son. You know, the guy from Choke. That's coming up after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. 
We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Henry Heimlich's son, Peter, couldn't understand how his father could betray his profession and compromise himself ethically. He saw what was happening and decided it needed to be addressed publicly. So he started sending anonymous letters to medical organizations and journalists telling them about his father's malpractice. He was on a mission. And after Dr. Heimlich realized it was his son sending the letters, he wrote him a letter. It read, Dear Pete, I want you to know that I am aware you are the one writing letters and disseminating them and other material. Others you have mentioned are also aware of this. All my love, Dad. I mean, we know family can be complicated sometimes, but that's a hell of a note. And it probably won't surprise you that these revelations tore the family apart. There was all this evidence that their father conducted some pretty inhumane experiments on vulnerable people. How do you reconcile that? Phil Heimlich again. What I thought about it was my father has been right so many times and the medical establishment, the experts have been wrong many times that if I have to choose, I'll go with my dad. He just wanted to save lives and that was always his primary motivation. Malarial therapy wasn't the only thing mentioned in the letters and on the website. Peter also criticized Heimlich's campaign to persuade the public to use the Heimlich maneuver on drowning victims despite numerous medical organizations warning that the maneuver could actually cause people to vomit and aspirate. Part of him, I think, became convinced by his success with the maneuver for choking that he was uniquely equipped and maybe even destined to come up with even bigger life-saving inventions. Now, this is where it gets a bit ugly. After receiving several anonymous faxes from Peter, Jason reached out to him to find out more about the accusations within the faxes. He talked to Peter as part of his reporting for the article. But when the article was published, Peter turned on Jason. He dedicated a page on his website to Jason and his wife. In it, he slammed Jason's article and accused him of hiding his own connection to Heimlich. What connection is that? Well... Peter's web post suggested Jason's wife was in cahoots with Henry and had secretly participated in Henry's illegal AIDS experiments. Peter wondered whether the article was a ploy to derail him from getting that secret information. But Jason's wife had never worked with Henry or even met him for that matter. Basically, he thought that I was trying to protect Heimlich and I was just, and I was doing that because my wife worked with him, which was, you know, obviously completely untrue and and crazy. I mean... It does sound a bit crazy because I read the article and Jason wasn't exactly positive about Henry Heimlich. It's pretty hard to understand what exactly this crusade was at this point. I mean, he was out to expose Henry Heimlich 
And Jason's article seems to do just that, right there in the New Republic. But maybe that's the thing about people on a mission. They become so focused that they can lose sight. I think they both started with good intentions. Both Henry and his son were motivated by the desire to do good. One wanted to save lives, and the other wanted to prevent further damage. But eventually, their desire to do good may well have led them both to cause harm. The father obviously started you know, promoting dangerous and medically unsound medical treatments. And the son started making allegations and coming up with sort of conspiracy theories that you know, went, went beyond the facts in terms, of, in terms of the bad things his father had done. Henry Heimlich wasn't satisfied with the success he had. He kept chasing something bigger and bigger with indifference to how many people got hurt along the way. And maybe his son, in a strange way, followed in his footsteps. The desire to be known for something good can be overwhelming. I mean, everyone wants to leave the world a little better than when they found it. But this story shows that sometimes right can be just a few steps away from wrong. Yeah, some people are just never satisfied and they will they will pursue their ambitions um, to the point of self-destruction. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. And then it starts losing steam, and then it starts deflating slowly, slowly, slowly. And then it crash lands in a field. And that was a real hold your breath moment. Because you're thinking about, is the kid alive? Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Mira Kumar. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Lizzie Jacobs, and Ella McLeod. <laughs>